Well, good evening. It is good to be here with you again. And uh, once again, so thankful to uh, be able to be here and to share from Scripture with you. Um, tonight we, uh, we begin our, uh, our second installment of a series uh, we've entitled For Our Good. And um, if you weren't able to be here last Wednesday, um, the notes are online. You can uh, check that out on our website. Um, what we wanted to do when we were talking about this subject is we wanted to kind of take a lot of theological issues and theological doctrines, and we kind of wanted to break them away from sometimes the, um, the technicality or the headiness that oftentimes is attached with theology, and we kind of wanted to help us understand why these are good for us to know, why these things are good for us to understand. And so uh, with all that said, uh, I want you to understand that tonight is by far the most heady and technical um, message that we're going to have in the series, okay? It is um, very difficult uh, to understand. Um, honestly, um, we really can't understand it fully as we talked about the, the doctrine of the Trinity it is one of those things that is never going to be fully comprehended by humans. So go ahead and settle in your mind that tonight you may understand a fraction, just like I only understand a fraction, but the vast majority of what we call the triune God, uh, the Trinity, will we ever fully come to grips with. And so um, I, uh, I want us to kind of jump in, but uh, before we do that, I want to give us a working definition of what I'm talking about when I use the word Trinity. What we believe uh, here at Christian Life is we believe that the triune God is one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. We believe that God is one God who exists eternally in the scope of three distinct persons. Now, Father, we ask you to come. We ask you for your help tonight. We pray that the enlightening, revelatory power of the Holy Spirit would be ours, that you would help us to understand you at a deeper, more intimate level, and that you would help us, God, to understand why this triune God is for our benefit and for our good. So bless your people, bless the reading of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. Uh, this last week, or actually a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, Pastor Mike sent an article around to all of the pastors, and um, it was a post uh, from the, the Washington Post, and I know you can't always believe what the Washington Post, or any other post for that matter, uh, says, but this is a, a study I did a little bit of research on, and there is, um, it is, it is an accredited study, and the study was uh, regarding the Holocaust, and it was talking specifically toward the millennial generation, which I am just on the cusp of that generation. I think millennials start in 1981. I was born in 1980, so I'm just on the, on the edge of that. But uh, the study was for several thousand millennials, and it was regarding the Holocaust and asked all sorts of questions. But the end all takeaway from it was, was simply this, that out of all the people that were surveyed, it amounted to 22% of millennials had never even heard the term Holocaust. And as I took a step back a couple of years ago, uh, when we went on the, the trip to Israel, we, we went to the Holocaust Museum. 
And it was one of the most sobering experiences of my life. You see the shoes of victims and read their stories and listen, it was a powerful, powerful moment. But in the Holocaust, six million Jews were exterminated from the face of the planet. And less than a hundred years later, we have an entire generation where only a portion of them have ever even heard the term Holocaust, where six million people have been wiped off the face of the planet. And so as I thought about it, I thought, man, we have to, we have to further our education. And thank God there have been school, school districts that have, have tried to sign into law that we need to educate our children about the Holocaust. And, and I thank God for that. Because I realize this, as most of us do, that if we do not teach the next generation's history, we are deemed to repeat that history on some level, okay? And with that said, I think the, the same is true when it comes to theology, whether it be proper theology or, or improper theology, I think the same is true. If we don't teach coming generations the reality and the historical foundation of why we believe the things that we believe, we oftentimes may be doomed to repeat those things in different ways at different levels. And so tonight what I wanna do is I want to talk to you about uh, what we call, your sermon notes, the title is called A Set of Three. I don't even like the way that, that, that sounds because there's no right way to describe the Trinity that is absolutely perfect. But tonight I want to attempt to, and before we get into to all the definitions and the, the scripture and the technical sides of it, I want to talk to you about the history and the, the understanding the, the, how the, the doctrine of the Trinity was revealed to the people of God back uh, a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, most of you know that in the, in the first century, there, uh, this is when Christ lived and um, he died on the cross, he rose again, he resurrected from the grave. And there were, there were a couple of hundred years where um, people did not have a Bible the way that we have the Bible today. Okay, we talked about this last week, but they didn't have the Bible the way that we have the Bible today. And so many of them had letters or portions or fragments of the scripture. And basically what they would do is they would circulate them among the churches and they would try to collect the scriptures so that they could have a full understanding of, of what God was trying to show. And for a couple of hundred years, it was, uh, there, there were a lot of things being taught that were absolutely on par um, um, scripturally and doctrinally and theologically, they were right on. But just like in any type of movement, Throughout time, some people started taking some turns in the wrong direction, and they started teaching things that were a little bit different than what the Orthodox Christians of that day were teaching and, and believed. And so in the, in the 300s, there was a, a man by the name of Arius, and he was one of the first men to really go in a direction that, that truly would have changed the entire trajectory of the Christian faith and the Christian church if he wasn't stopped. And Arius basically, uh, he wasn't a bishop or anything like that. He thought of himself as a theologian, as a scholar. But basically what he began to teach was that Jesus was not God as we know him to be God, but that Jesus was a created being by God the Father. So in other words, what Arius would say is he would say, yes, we believe that God exists and he created humanity at this level. And if angels are at this level, then Jesus is right up here next to God. He's like God, but he is not God. God created him at some point in history 
and therefore he should not be worshipped as God. And so um, there, were, there were other men of uh, more, uh, more um, orthodox belief. There was a guy by the name of Alexander from the city of Alexandria, and he would stand and contest against Arius. And so um, what, what, uh, what Alexander would believe and what he would proclaim is that, no, Jesus was not a created being that Jesus was eternal, that Jesus is God, that he is to be worshiped as God, that he is to be honored as God. He is not like God, he is God. And there was a very distinct difference. And so as the argument grew in the city of Alexandria, there started to be riots in the streets. I mean, people thought religion in that day was very different than it is today. In much of American culture, religion is a supplement to one's life. In that day, religion was a foundation for people's lives. And so there was, there was very serious moment. And in the city of Alexandria, there, there, was, such, there was such contention that riots literally broke out in the streets. Not, not thousands of people, but dozens of people were protesting and they would shout against one another and they made mantras protesting, you know, the, the other people, the other side's belief and all these kind of things. And, and the situation in Alexandria got, got so um, escalated that Constantine took notice of it. Now, Constantine was the emperor during this time. And he believed, he was, supposedly he was a converted Christian. I do believe that he put his faith in Christ. He was supposedly a converted Christian. But what he believed was not only can Christianity be good for me and my salvation, but Christianity can help solidify and bring stability to my kingdom. And so not only am I going to take advantage of the Christian faith personally so that I can go to heaven when I die, but I'm going to use it as a means to bring stability and a foundation to the culture that I'm trying to create. And so when all these things started to erupt, Constantine took notice. And he said, this, this is getting out of hand. I can't allow this to happen. And so what he does is they, they formulate this council that we now know as the Council of Nicaea. In the year 325 AD, um, there were several hundred bishops that all descended into one location. And in this location, you had people from all the, the known world that, where there were Christian churches. You had people from Syria and Egypt. You had people from Greece. I mean, you had people literally from all over the world that had descended in Nicaea so that they could discuss these issues. Now, it wasn't just the contention between Arius and, and Alexander. There were other small issues, but this one was the one that, that would really be prominent in, in the entire discussion. Now, I want to paint a picture for you really quickly about how this situation looked. It was a building or a, a church structure that, that could probably house several hundred people. And you have 300 men that were either bishops or they were delegates. So if, if there was a bishop who wasn't healthy enough to travel, then he would send a delegate, etc. And so they all kind of come into this, this arena to discuss and to discover what are we going to sell ourselves on doctrine-wise and what are we going to push to the side and, and kind of discard. And as they come into this room, you've got men from all around the world different races, different creeds. You got, you've got just a hodgepodge of different people. But probably what's most important to understand about the mixture of people that came is not just that they came from different places, but they came from a, a lot of different experiences. We read and we find in history that many of these men 
They had been so committed to the cause of Christ in their region of the world that many of the men had lost limbs. They had had hands cut off as in a form of torture. Many of them had been um, exiled from their hometown or from the place where they were preaching. They were, many of them were imprisoned or starved. They had lost family members, friends for the cause of Christ. And all these people so committed to the message of Christ descend in this one place. And history says that Arius, he's not a bishop, so he sends a, a delegate. The delegate stands up in the podium and he begins to explain his position that Christ is not God but he is just something like God. He is a lesser God. And it's revealed to us in history that the people in that room, the vast majority anyway, it wasn't 100%, but the vast majority of the people begin to stand up and they begin to shout him down in the worst of ways. They said, you lie. You are a heretic. This is disgraceful. And what we're told is they, 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 they were, were so infuriated that they rushed the podium they removed him from the podium, they took his notes and they tore him up and they threw him on the ground and they stomped on him as an act of defiance that we are going to be people that view Jesus as God, not Jesus as a being created by God. It was a very hostile moment in, in the history of the church. And you can see that if it would have went the other direction today, we may not be worshiping Christ as God. Today, we may not be joining together in this. So, so even in history past, there is such a profound moment that revolves around the deity of Christ and not just the deity of Christ, but ultimately it would result in, in a creed, the Nicene Creed, just a few years later, that also affirmed the deity of the Holy Spirit, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were not all completely separate beings, but they were one being manifest in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? One of Alexander's, um, Alexander's uh, protégés, his name is um, uh, Athenius, he was a man who would come to be known even more than Alexander for standing up against the, they call it the Arian controversy against Arius. But Arius didn't go away, and for a couple of dozen years, Arius fought against Athenius, and, and uh, history tells us that Athenius, he kind of got to the point where he, he had to leave his hometown because there was so much pressure on him to remove him, and they, they spread rumors about him, and they told him that, you know, they, they told people that he was involved in the black arts, and he was making potions and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was a, a really difficult time. But in the end, just a few years after Athenius died, we ratified what we now know as the Nicene Creed, which affirms the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we call the triune God. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to, I want to talk to us about the gravity of what it means to understand as much as we can about the triune Godhead. I don't want us just to go through a bunch of knowledge just for the sake of going through knowledge, even though we will do that. But I think there's a reason that God revealed himself in such a way to us that ultimately is for our good. And we will get to that here in just a couple of minutes. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to talk to you about eight different things that every Christian should know and understand about the Trinity. And number one I'll start with is this, is that the Trinity is complex. 
And I realized after we had these notes printed, I should have made a, a grammatical uh, change and put the Trinity is very, 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 very complex to understand. It's been said that uh, you try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind, but if you try to deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul, okay? And so all throughout history, people have tried to explain the triune God in, in the best way possible. And so there are all kind of illustrations that people point to. Um, uh, St. Patrick was one. Uh, he, he was a missionary to Ireland, and, and he said that, that the Trinity was like a clover leaf or a three-leaf clover. It was one leaf, but it had three different elements to it. Um, there were others that would say that the Trinity was like, um, was like a rainbow. It had one beam, but it manifest in, in many different colors. Um, there were uh, a lot of different things. I, there are a couple that I really don't like because they, they fall apart really quickly. Uh, there are some that are, that are better. Pastor does a great job of explaining uh, how we can kind of see the Trinity um, when we think about the understanding of time. Uh, pastor says that, that we have time, but then we have in, in the midst of time, we have past, present, and future. They're all time, but they are all distinct from one another. Past is not the present, et cetera. So, so it's one way of, of looking at it. Another way I, I like of looking at it, um, one man uh, wrote, he said that the Trinity is kind of like uh, a spring of water that comes up from the ground that manifests into a fountain that flows into the stream, okay? So they are all the same substance. They are just different in how they are manifested. And so um, there are a lot of different ways that people have, have talked about it, but here's the reality of it all. In the end, every single illustration breaks down. Every single illustration, every single teaching on the triune God, every um, idea or epiphany that we come up with to explain the vastness of the Trinity, it all falls short of the reality of who God is. It's incredibly frustrating, okay? Uh, but C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, here's the thing. He said, if you could, if, if you could draw something in a one dimension, a one dimensional object, and then you could draw something in a two-dimensional object, and then there's a three-dimensional object. He said, you may be able to look at all three of these, a single dimension, a double dimension, and a tri-dimension. You may be able to look at all these, but if all you understand is a single dimension, you will never be able to grip a cube in its, in its three dimension. And so, so although it's very frustrating, it, it is a humbling thing that helps us look at God and say, Father, of all that I know, of all the wisdom you've given, of all the knowledge and understanding that I have, your ways are still so far above my ways. Your thoughts are so far above my thoughts. You are so other than what we are. We can only get a fraction of a glimpse into who God is. So I start off by saying that the, the Trinity is deeply confusing, but I also want us to understand this. Though it's deeply confusing, there is a reason that God has revealed this to us. There is a reason that he wants us to see him in this way as something other than what we are, perhaps so that we can value and appreciate um, his otherness even more. So number one, it is deeply complex. Number two, uh, the Trinity is a scriptural reality. 
Um, in the Old Testament, there, there are just scripture upon scripture. I put some in your notes here. Uh, in the very first passage of the entire Bible, the scriptures read, in the beginning, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, which is the word for, we believe that, that Jesus is the word of God based on uh, John's gospel. Then God said, which is a representation of the Son, let there be light, and there was light. Just a few verses down, the Bible says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. So even in, in this moment, this isn't a, where you can point to Father, Son, and Spirit, but in this moment, you see God speaking in a community, having a discussion about the creation of humankind. I've heard people say, well, he was talking with a heavenly counselor, he was talking with angels or other created beings. Listen to me, the Bible says, he says, let us make mankind in our image. And then the Bible says, and so God made him in the image of God. Angels are not like God. So when the father was speaking here, he's speaking in a triune way with the son and the spirit saying, let us make man in our image. And Isaiah the prophet, we read this every year at Christmas. The prophet says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, which is the Holy Spirit, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which is the Father, and the Prince of Peace, which is the Son. All throughout the Old Testament, you can see over and over again, um, uh, maybe not specific references to the Trinity in, in those uh, powerful terms, but you see things like Pastor talked about last week, like the angel of the Lord being represented. You see the spirit descending and being poured out on people. So they're, they're, uh, people are alluding to the Trinity all throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it seems to, to take on even, even a greater momentum. We see at the conception of, of Jesus, uh, the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, Father God, will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born to you called the Son of God. As Jesus, the Son, was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending upon him like a dove and alighting him. And a voice from heaven, the Father, saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So you see all throughout Jesus' life, the, the, the triune God is being revealed over and over and over again. After the cross, Jesus is going and he gives the great commission to go into to all the nations and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name. Now pick this up. He uses the, the singular form of the word name. He says, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He does not say in the names of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's talking about one God represented in three persons. So he says, the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Paul would say to the Romans and, and Corinthians and Ephesians, he would say, if the Holy Spirit of the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead who dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. He said in 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the love of the Father God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The, the triune God is, a, is, is deeply complex, but it's also deeply spiritual, or excuse me, deeply scriptural. It is deeply spiritual, but it's deeply scriptural, okay? And so this is what happened with, with, with Arius and Athenius and all these different people. As they are reading scripture, it's not that they are developing a doctrine of the Trinity. That's not what this is about. They are discovering the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not like they looked and they said, I don't know, we're bored with all this teaching. Let's figure something else out and let's make a triune God. That was not the case. It was revealed to them in the process of time, in the fullness of time even. It was revealed to them through the scriptures, the doctrine of the Trinity. As Pastor had, had talked about the Apostles' Creed and again with the Nicene Creed, they do not teach us doctrine. They just affirm the doctrine from scripture. And that is exactly what is going on in this situation. And so, so it's a deeply scriptural um, concept. Number three, the Trinity is Orthodox Christianity. Okay? Last week, if, if you were not here, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a quick version of it. Uh, last week, we talked about um, different uh, doctrines, different positions that people take in the Christian faith. And uh, there, there are three different tiers or three different levels we talked about. Uh, the first tier in the, in the center here is what we call the, the non-negotiables. These are things that we are never going to debate, we're never going to discuss. They are the core orthodox of the Christian faith. Things like the resurrection of Jesus from, from the grave, uh, the, the sacrificial blood atonement for his people. Um, then you have this extra layer out here, which is a little more peripheral, but it's, it's things that... that are not non-negotiables, but we don't like to negotiate, okay? And it's the things like um, the mode of baptism or what happens when a person receives communion, right? Um, now, now, communion is a non-negotiable. Water baptism is a non-negotiable. But how it happens is not necessarily a non-negotiable. Does that make sense? And so you have this, this, this rock-hard tier, and then you have this tier, and then you have you know, the tear out here, which is just basically opinions. Do we want pastor to wear skinny jeans? Um, you know, kind of thing. And who really cares? You know, Miss um, Ramona would love it. But anyway, the point is, is that out of all these three tiers, here in the middle is where the triune God is. Okay, it is a non-negotiable. It is a doctrine that is, that is just riddled all throughout scripture. It is one of those things that that we never negotiate. Because to, to, to debate the triune God is to remove the, the deity of Jesus. It's to make him something less than God. And therefore, it is one of those non-negotiables um, that we adhere to. So it is Orthodox Christianity. Um, the Trinity is not, sometimes it's better to tell people what things are not as opposed to what they are. Um, so the Trinity is not a concept of three gods, okay? Very, very important. We are not saying that there are three independent gods that rule and reign over us. All throughout Scripture, Old, New Testament alike, over and over again emphatically declared that there is one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4 is probably, uh, this is what uh, those in the Jewish faith would cling to, okay? Um, oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, he's talking to them about idolatry and, you know, things sacrificed to idols and all this. And, and this is what he says. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world. He's saying, we know that idols, they're just demonic. Like, they're, they're not important or anything. But this is what he says. He says, but we know that there is no God but one God. So Paul is echoing this position that there, there, there are not many, many different gods. There may be different idols, but they're demonic. The triune God is not three different gods. It is one being whom we call God that manifests himself in three different persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, we, we understand that um, there are a lot of different belief systems. Um, there are what we call atheists, okay? These are people who do not believe in God. Um, a stand, it, it basically means non, okay? So a person who, um, uh, if, you, if you start talking about things that are moral and things that are immoral, here in the middle you have things that are not either moral or immoral, they're amoral, which means they're neither, you know what I'm saying? So, so atheists are those who are just kind of in the middle. They're like, they're like, there is no God, there is no deity. We don't believe in this, that, anything. There, it just is what it is. Okay. Beyond that, we have monotheists. Okay. We all know that mono um, is is what it means is is one. It's a singular statement. And so we believe that there is one God. It's like monogamy. Okay. If, if you're married. Hopefully you have a monogamous relationship, a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Um, this is what we claim to be as Christians. The trouble steps in when we begin to explain our position on the triune God, especially, most especially, sometimes in the Jewish faith, but, but definitely um, in the Islamic faith, um, we, we get called tritheists which is basically the, the understanding because of our belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are, we are accused of having three gods in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The trouble is, is they do not understand what we are trying to say in that, no, we don't believe in three different gods. We believe in one God. He just manifests himself between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? This is why in, in Scripture, in the book of Revelation and, and other places, you see the angelic uh, beings. You see the created beings all around the throne. And they fall their, on their faces before the Lord. And what do they cry? They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So in other words, they're saying holy in a plural sense. Holy Father, Holy Son. Holy, Holy Spirit, okay? Lord God Almighty, singular. Does that make sense? And so we have this, this, this very difficult understanding, but very clear in Scripture that we serve one God that is represented in, in three distinct persons, which indirectly is number five. The Trinity is one being, three persons. Um, Mark Driscoll wrote a book, called doctrine, and he, it was brilliant, but this is what he says regarding the Trinity. He says, God is one God, eternally existing in three persons. Each of the three shares fully the, the one divine essence. God is not simply unity, 
but eternally exist in rich, loving fellowship as the one and only God. And so what happened throughout church history is that you started to have people who were trying to rationalize the Trinity. And as a, in, in, in their effort to confirm the Trinity, many of them kind of went off track and they started just creating just, just weird types of doctrines. One of those doctrines is what we call uh, modalism. And modalism is the idea that God basically changes forms from time to time. So there, there's one prevailing thought that, that in the Old Testament, God was just in heaven. It was just God the Father in heaven. But when Jesus came to the earth, God left heaven and became Jesus and settled in on the earth. And then when Christ rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven, he went up to heaven, changed forms into the spirit, and then descended on the planet. Okay, it's a changing of forms. It's, they call it modalism because it's a changing of modes. He, he changes modes. And, and that is just incredibly, that is so refuted by scripture. Even at the, some of the scriptures we just read, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you hear the Father speaking from heaven. The, the Son is clearly here on earth. The Spirit is represented in the dove. So it is clearly um, refuted by scripture, um, but, but there are folks that, that have just trying to rationalize the mystery of God have indirectly gone into error. And so we just got to be real careful about the things that, that we listen to and, and, and the things that we applaud and believe, okay? There's a great man by the name of um, Ray Ortland. He is a, he's a pastor, or he's just retired now, I guess, but he was a pastor in Tennessee, but he's, he's now an author, and he is just, I have so much respect for the man. We disagree theologically on some things, but he is a true, humble man of God, and I, I just, I'm so thankful for his writings and his work. Um, he was trying to help people understand how God could be in two places at, at one time, and, and he wrote to this, and, and this is what he said. He was writing, um, he was writing using the author J.R.R. Tolkien, um, as, as an example in his writings. This is what he said. He says, suppose Tolkien had written himself into Middle Earth as a character of the story alongside Frodo and Mary and Pippin and the rest. So Middle Earth is from Lord of the Rings, okay? So, it's, so he's saying, suppose that Tolkien, writing this novel, had written himself into the novel. Okay, so he says, suppose he had written himself in the novel. Had Tolkien done so, he would, not, he would not, for that reason, cease to exist in Oxford where he was writing the novel. In fact, his whole existence in Middle Earth depends on him writing in Oxford, right? So he goes on to say, nor has the unity of Tolkien's person been impaired, for one person can simultaneously be in Middle Earth and Oxford, because they are not two different places within one realm, but two different realms all together. Does that make sense? So he goes on to say, in other words, it is one thing to be in Oxford and in Cambridge at the same time, because you're in the same realm of earth, but it is a totally different thing to be in the Shire and in Oxford at the same time, because you're in two completely different realms. And so what he's saying, he's saying, listen, Heaven is not like earth. 
He's saying it's not, even, it's not even close to what we can fathom this planet being like. He says they are two utterly and completely different realms. There is nothing like heaven in the same way that there is nothing like God. And so he says, so the possibility of God existing in two locations is a very real possibility simply for the fact that they are not the same realm. They are two different types of realms. Are y'all following me? All right, I know I told you it was very technical. Don't worry, next week will be super, like we'll sing songs and stuff like that, okay? It'll be great. Um, so, so it's important to understand that, that as, as we believe that God is one being, but he's represented in three distinct persons, these distinct persons also have specific roles that, that God carries out through the earth. One writer said this, he said, every act of God originates with the Father, it is executed by the Son, and it is perfected by the Holy Spirit. And so all three in the triune Godhead, they have different functionality and, and they are different persons and they, they accomplish different things, but they are always and together in unity eternally. Number six is what we call the Trinity, is co-eternal and co-equal. Basically what the, the term co-eternal means is this, is that Jesus did not become God. Jesus has always been God, okay? Uh, there is a, a theory called adoptionism, not adoption, but adoptionism, which suggests that when Jesus came to earth through enlightenment or pure living or self-sacrifice or whatever it was, that at certain point, the father looked at Jesus and said, you know what, I like him so much, I'm gonna make him God. And Jesus was adopted as God. That is, that is heresy. That is not even close to, to a scriptural truth. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John said, in the beginning, the word, which is Jesus, already existed. The word was with God the Father, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. So there is this idea that, that, that Jesus, Holy Spirit, they are all equally eternal. None of them created each other. They are always and forever eternal beings. They are co-equal in their existence. In your notes, there's a little diagram there that, that reveals to us. It's been used for ages. This, this reveals to us uh, the reality of, of God is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, so it's this understanding that, that all three of these are fully and completely God. So Father is fully and completely God, but he is not the Son or the Spirit, and so on and so forth. The Holy Spirit is fully God, but he's not the Father, and he's not the Son. The Son is fully God, but he's not the Father, and he is not the Holy Spirit. However, we understand in Scripture that in Christ, the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form. And so it is clear through Scripture that it wasn't just a person that God the Father picked up along the way or he, he put out from himself. These three were eternal beings, and they equally coexist, and they are of equal value. Jesus isn't going to understand you more than the Father will understand you. I think, um, I think it's with every child who's ever existed, but um, you've been with your kids, and, you know, my kids, all four of them, at a certain point, they would come to me and ask me for something, and I would say, no, baby, you, you can't have that, and what do they immediately do besides cry? They go to mama, 
right? And like, mama, daddy, and what they're thinking is they're thinking daddy just doesn't understand, mama will understand, right? Or vice versa, they'll go to mom, she'll be like, no, that's dumb. Then they'll come to dad and he'll, daddy will understand, mommy doesn't get it, mommy doesn't, listen to it. That is, that is not how the Godhead operates. The Godhead is, is of, of equal value and they are always and forever on the same page with one another. Right? So the Spirit of God, is, you know, he's not going to be a little more lenient than the Father. You know, it's not that we go to the Father and we're like, Father, if you will it, will you give me this new car or whatever it is? And the Father says no, and we say, fine. We go over here and say, Spirit, would you, would you get it? And he says no. Fine. Jesus, what about you? That is not how to, there, and that is just not how it operates. They are always and forever on the same page. Why? Because they are one being. They are inseparable. They are without division or dissent. Okay? Uh, number seven, and I know we got to get going. Number seven, the Trinity is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Okay? I told you it was technical. Just, just go with it. Okay? These words are foundational attributes in the character of God. Omnipotent, the, the word omni is all. The word potent means power, okay? Um, God is sovereign and all-powerful over all things, okay? Jesus in his life, um, some people would say, well, what about Jesus when, you know, it seems as though Jesus should have done some things, but he didn't do those things. Why didn't he just da-da-da-da-da? And the reality is this, is that it's, it's a term that we call the kenosis, which basically means this, that Jesus laid aside some of his divine privileges so that he could become human form, okay? Now, Jesus did not lay aside his divinity. He didn't exchange like humanity for deity. He was always God. But the Bible in Philippians 2 says that, that Jesus kind of laid aside these privileges or limited himself so that he could be with humanity, okay? It's like when you wrestle with your kids, right? Um, when, you're, when your three-year-old runs and they tackle you, you don't take them and body slam them or throw them through the window, right? Listen, you accommodate their strength, or, or better yet, you accommodate their weakness. You know what they can and cannot handle, and therefore you adjust accordingly. As Jesus comes to the planet as God incarnate, he doesn't come in this, this, this vein of fury which no man can look upon his face. He comes in a position that accommodates what we can handle, and he reveals himself in the perfect image of the Father. And so we understand that although God is, God is all-powerful in the incarnation of Jesus, he laid aside some things temporarily, or, or he just chose not to use those things so that he could accommodate us, um, but he is all-powerful. Omniscient means that God has perfect and complete knowledge. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I went, when we went to London, Pastor Nine, my wife, some others, we went to London a few years ago. On the last day of our trip, I left them in London and I went up to Oxford so that I could eat at the pub where C.S. Lewis ate his food. It was amazing. So you'll, you'll get that. I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, but he would basically say this. He would basically say that it's as if God is omniscient in this sense. People don't understand how can he know all things. C.S. Lewis would say, it's as if God is outside of time and space, and time and space is in this tube. And as the beginning of history and the end of history are constantly unfolding, God can see every angle of the tube and know everything that's going on. This is why scripture declares he knows the end from the beginning. 
right? It's because God can, can, can do all these things because he is outside of time and space. So he is omniscient. He has perfect and complete knowledge. He is omnipresent, which means that he is at all places and all times. Um, I just want to speak real quickly to that and, and say this. The scripture in, in Colossians declares that, that Christ is the being that holds all things together. Okay, so even when even when God is not welcome in a place, his continuous presence is is still there. His presence permeates everything at all times, forever and always. There is a different type of presence that I would call the concentrated presence of God, which is when I go into my prayer closet and I seek the face of the Lord. It's when we corporately come together and you start to sense something's different here, right? You know, that's the sensing that there's a, there's a concentrated presence and power of God. And so, so all of these omni-attributes, all of these are shared between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father didn't look and be like, all right, Son, look, you can have the omniscience. You can know everything. I'm going to take the all power. That's not how it is. They all share all of these qualities and attributes. Um, in, in the sense of, of being one being represented by three distinct persons. Number eight, finally this, and we're coming to a close. This, in my opinion, is perhaps one of the main reasons that God revealed himself in the form of a trinity. And I believe it's this. It's because the trinity is a social concept. Okay, there was a guy um, back in the 1100s, he was, a, he was a theologian, and he basically said this. He took the portion of John's writings that, that defines God by saying God is love. And what he did, he built this whole system stating that if we believe that God is, lo is love, then by default, God cannot be a singular being in a singular person. Because God has existed before all of eternity, okay? And so if he had no one to love, thus he could not be a being of love. And so what we, what we understand uh, about all this is, is simply this. In the Trinity, we understand love at a very different level than what we understand without it, okay? Understand that, that Jesus, he said this. He said, Father, you have loved me before the foundations of the earth were created, right? So, so before there was a world, there was a family that loved one another in the scope of the Trinity. There was this overwhelming sense of honor and appreciation and value in the social dynamic of the Trinity that was going on. I've heard pastors my whole life say things like, oh man, God, God created Adam and Eve because he was lonely. You know, God created Adam and Eve because he needed fellowship. Yes, Lord. God created Adam and Eve. He created us because he needed someone to worship him. And I think about that and I think, no, that's not even close to being true. Because in all of eternity past, God was the, uh, the epitome of love in the social dynamic of the triune God. He did not need to create angels he didn't need to create us. We are not the, the, the focus of all history and all existence. God had everything he needed before anything was ever created. 
What happened is that in the scope of the Trinity, there was so much togetherness and there was so much love and there was so much honor, there was so much thankfulness that the love of God within the Trinity overflowed. And he said, I've got to create more things to love. I've got to create more things to love because this is just an overwhelming sense of love that is experienced in the concept of the Trinity. You start to begin to realize that God the Father in eternity past loved the Son so well that before Jesus was going to the cross, he remembered, he, he comforted his own soul by saying, Father, I'm going to return to you because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. And I am so ready to return back to that love. It is a powerful, powerful notion. So I believe that in the, in, the, in, the, in the relational dynamic of the Trinity, love is revealed to us. I've also believed that, that a, a model for relationships when it comes to preferring one another, um, to submitting one to another, is found in the doctrine of the Trinity. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, not my will, but your will. He says, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it first. Right? So there is this willing, loving, honoring submission within the triune Godhead that gives us a model for all of our relationships. It doesn't mean that Jesus or the Holy Spirit are less than God the Father because they are willingly submissive. That would be like saying my wife is less than me because she is submissive to me. That, that, is, that is the farthest thing from the truth. She does not lose her value or her equality because we have a submissive relationship, a mutually submissive relationship. And so, so it's so important to understand that even in this dynamic, we have a model for life and for living in relationships in all of these things found in this very, very, very special thing called the triune God. Are we confused enough yet tonight? All right. Stand with me real quick. I have exhausted all my time and my physical body. Here in the next few weeks, when there's not so much information to go across, I'll slow down a little bit. We'll have some, some good time. I want us to understand that though the triune God is not understood by rationale, we must embrace it by faith. Um, Martin Luther, one of the most brilliant minds to ever walk the face of the earth, he, he logically tried to figure out the Trinity and all these kind of things. And at the, at the end of it, he exhausted himself. And this is what he said. He said, in the end, because it is based on clear scripture, reason must be silent and we must simply believe. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how much we learn. Doesn't matter how much we read. Doesn't matter any of this. We just simply believe. This is what I think. I think that it is an amazing thing that in the vastness of who God is, in the bigness of this concept of the Trinity, I think it's amazing that it's almost like the Father just kind of cracked open that much of a door to be able to see the beauty of who he is, to whet our appetite, to want even more. And Father, tonight, that's what we desire with all of our hearts. 
God, enhance our affections for you as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, not to fear. Help us not to be afraid of difficult and complex things, but help us to be led full of faith, full of excitement, full of love as we follow your scripture, as we follow your spirit. Will you help us in all these things? Bless your people this week as they go. My prayer is for their health, for the health of their family, for the health of those they work with and those that are surrounded with them every day. Bring them back safely here this Sunday, we pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you tonight. Thank you so much.